Welcome back to another episode of the Max Term Podcast. Kyle Stitch here alongside James Finch. And today we are going to do something we've been talking about for a little while. And that's break down how much athletes are actually making. How much they're actually kind of keeping in their bank account year to year. So this episode isn't necessarily meant to, you know, uh, build build up athletes, wealthy millionaires, but we want to give some level of perspective to that big contract that you see is not nearly as much money as you might think, especially when you're considering the fact that athletes uh, earning potential earning careers are much lower than, than a lot of uh, kind of ordinary people. So we want to, we want to give a level of perspective on that today. Uh, so to also kind of give a little background, I work doing taxes for professional athletes. I've worked in a financial advising office with professional athletes. So I, I've seen athletes' finances. I see day-to-day what they've spent, kind of the tax implications. I see their bank account. So I have a pretty good sense. Um, obviously, we're not revealing anything sensitive here, but there is a pretty good sense of how much they actually are making year to year that we can provide and hopefully provide something interesting to you as listeners. Um, any ads you might hear associated with this podcast are not necessarily products that James or I are working with or endorsing or anything like that. And uh, we appreciate you giving us a follow on Twitter and we're trying to also use threads a little bit more, AFP analytics on both account- on both platforms. You can find our personals uh, there as well. We do appreciate you giving that at AFP Analytics a foul, subscribing to this podcast, Max Term Pod, on all major platforms plus YouTube. And with that, let's get into uh, some breaking down how much athletes actually get paid. So we were kind of going through thinking about, first from a tax perspective, a situation where it's really good for the athlete, a situation in the middle of the road, and a situation where they get hammered based on taxes, and it's mostly due to the state tax, which we'll talk a lot more about later in this episode. So we settled on kind of middle of the lineup players, ironically kind of three second pair, borderline first pair defensemen. We have Vladislav Gavrikov from the LA Kings, who's making just under $5.9 million. Jacob Slavin from the Carolina Hurricanes, whose contract is for $5.3 million. And then Eric Cernick from the Tampa Bay Lightning, whose contract is $5.2 million. So our goal is to use those three defensemen. It's kind of an example to show, well, yes, they, they're still making a lot of good money and, we, and any of us... Recording, listening would probably be uh, thrilled to make what they're making, but it's nowhere near what you're thinking it is because being a professional athlete is hard and it also takes a lot of commitment, both time and really money. So let's start off the top with uh, the swear word to all hockey players, escrow. So escrow is basically a method of reconciliation. What that means is each year, the players and the owners are entitled to about a 50-50 split 
of what's called hockey-related revenues. So the players get their split through their salaries, which are based on the salary cap. And then ownership basically takes the remainder. So other sports do it a little bit differently, but in hockey, what they do is they kind of reconcile how much money was made after each season. So they figure out how much the players should have had and how much the owners are entitled to after the season. So to kind of balance out, you know, have a little bit of pool because they're estimating those estimates might be pretty close. Or as we've seen kind of in the COVID where um, a lot of revenue was lost, the owners were not making nearly as much money as expected. So the idea of escrow is to take some of the money from the players' paychecks and set it aside right off the bat into a pool that after they go through, look at all the revenues, figure out how much each party's entitled to, well then some of it will go back to the owners and then some of it will be redistributed back to the players at a later date. So in the past, it's uh, in, during COVID, it was up to 20% of a player's paycheck was automatically taken out and set aside into a pool. For the upcoming NHL season, the 2023-2024 season, the kind of return to play um, set out that escrow would decline over kind of as, as they got farther away from the pandemic as revenue started to recover. So this season, this upcoming season, it's set at 6%, which is a lot lower than it's historically been really for like the past 10 years. So 6% of each player's contract is automatically taken out and set aside. So for Gavrikov, he's losing about three 350000 and a little change, Jacob Slavin's losing 318,000 and Eric Cernix losing 312,000. So this means that their kind of their wages, their earnings, basically what shows up on their W2, their end of the which is their end of the year tax statement or T4 in Canada, the end of the year earnings slip is is their what their contract says less this escrow amount. So when considering that Gavrikov's kind of earnings are 5.5 million and a little change, Slavin 4.982 million, and Cernik 4.888 million. So escrow comes off the top, but there's also a lot of other expenses that we're going to hit on before we get into the big one, which is taxes. Maybe some more hidden fees that you might be aware of, but maybe don't realize how much of a kind of hit it kind of has on some of these players. Yeah, so there's a couple that are here that we definitely want to touch on. And um, these are kind of, well, one of them is a, a set fee. Uh, it's the union fee. So we've got that penciled in. It was $6,030. Um, so not a large amount, but not insignificant either. Um, and, and that's just across the board for every player. Um, it's not a percentage of a player's salary. It is the, the same amount for everyone. So that, that's... 
I should just jump in real quickly here and just say that it's for every regular NHL player. If you get sent between the NHL and AHL, it does vary just a little bit. Yes. Um, so th- there is that union, that union fee. Um, another one that is probably a little more well-known that it occurs, but the amount not necessarily as well known is the agent fee and that's usually a percentage that's going to fall uh kind of in that three to four percent so for gavrikov we're looking at him uh losing about one hundred ninety thousand and some change uh jacob slavin losing one hundred seventy four thousand and some change and cernak losing about one hundred seventy one thousand um, and again, that's from the agent fee. It's going to be three to four percent, just depending on the situation. Um, one thing that we aren't calculating right now that could come into play is different. Uh, we'll call them marketing opportunities or endorsements. You'll sometimes hear them called. Uh, there can be an agent fee on those, and that can go up to really thirty percent of. Uh, that income on that opportunity. Um, But that's not off of the player's salary that we're looking at right now. It's just something to keep in mind is an additional um, income and then cost of working with an agent. That leads us into uh, a couple more uh, expenses to talk about here, Uh, things that could really lower the take-home pay of these players. Um, trainer tips is a big one. Uh, players that kind of want to be respected around the league and um, be known to take care of their trainers, it, they could be tipping anywhere from five to even up to twenty thousand uh, dollars each year um, in trainer tips. Moving kind of outside of the team environment, players need to really keep their bodies um, healthy and up to a playable uh, conditioning. Um, So any type of off-season skating, you're working with skills coaches, they might have a uh, special nutrition diet. Um, This is all going to cost money and it's all um, geared towards staying a professional athlete. Um, a lot of players could end up spending a hundred to two hundred thousand just trying to stay in shape for the next season, and while that isn't something they have to do necessarily, um, it's almost something that is an expected expense. It's going to come into play, um, so it, it's definitely something to look at for these. Um, for these players. So between these two, the, the conditioning, skills coaches, nutrition, all of that, and then the trainer tips, these guys could be looking at another 120, 125,000 to even 225,000, maybe up to 250, um, being basically subtracted from their take-home pay. Yeah, and I think in today's, you know, the way the league's going, if you're not staying in peak shape, 
you're not earning these these contracts either. They can find someone else who's going to probably perform better if you're not taking your training and stuff seriously. I also see some guys kind of have in-season like video coaches, skill coaches too, that they're even paying outside of what the team provides to them. So that could be even in addition potentially to that number we just gave you. And those, and trust me, those do not come cheap either. Yeah, there's a cost to not only getting to the level of a professional NHL player, but staying at that level. And I think that's something that kind of goes unnoticed. So we've hit on a lot of important expenses, but relatively speaking, they're the kind of smaller drops in buckets. The big one that athletes and everyone faces and pays is, is their income tax. The reason that athletes are particularly hit is because of their profile and just the amount of money that they're making. So everyone who's a citizen lives in the United States, Canada, really any country in the world, you pay a tax to the federal government. And in the United States and Canada, uh, it's a what's called a progressive tax rate. So as you make more money, you pay more tax. So it's not necessarily a linear scale. So, you know, the, the percent of tax an NHL player pays is not the same percentage that an AHL player pays. It The NHL pay, player is going to pay more because they just make more money and they have more tax imposed on that. So the U.S. imposes a federal tax, a social security tax, which caps out at a very small threshold for these NHL players. So it's very insignificant. We're talking about $150,000 is the cap that it's imposed on. So they only pay like $9,000 to social security for an ordinary person. That That's a significant hit, but we're talking a drop in a bucket for a multi-million dollar NHL player. And then they pay into the Medicare system as well. And they actually pay a higher, a little bit higher of a percentage than an ordinary person. Well, anyone making uh, less than $200,000. People above $200,000 pay an extra 0.9%. So it comes out about 2.5% when all is said and done. Not, not massive, but it is, it is still significant in the U.S. So in the U.S., the top tax bracket is 37%. So that kicks in depending on if you're married or single um, at, different, at different levels. But, both, but all these players being well into the millions of dollars are paying 37% on every additional dollar earned. In Canada, that tops out at 33% but the Canadian provinces are a lot higher tax rates than the U.S. states. So Canadian players generally with, there's tax planning strategies around this, but Canadian players generally are paying 50 to 55, maybe even 60% of their income into taxes. But in the U.S., uh, there's an opportunity depending on which team you play with. So this is kind of why we chose the Los Angeles Kings, Carolina Hurricanes, and Tampa Bay Lightning. There's an opportunity depending on the team and how you kind of position yourself 
to create pretty significant tax savings. And this kind of was amplified in 2017 when the United States uh, Congress passed the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act. So prior to the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, um, athletes were able to basically deduct a lot more expenses from their taxable income at the federal level. So they were able to take a deduction for state taxes paid. So it kind of kind of balanced out those with low state taxes and those with high state taxes overall because they received kind of benefit at the federal level. Well, you can't really take, you can take up to $10,000 of state taxes now, which is a drop in the bucket when you're talking, you know, a $5.9 million contract. And then you used to also be able to take all those fees that James kind of just detailed, those trainer tips, those union dues, your agent fees. So, so it, it helped lower your taxable income at the federal level for if you are a professional athlete. Again, 2017, tax law was changed and it widened the gap between states that have low to no income tax, such as Tampa Bay, based in Florida, and states with really high taxes, LA Kings, based in California. California's highest tax rate is 12.3% and then they also, for anyone making over a million dollars, hit you with an extra 1% that goes to basically a, ment it's called a mental health services tax. So all these guys who are making over a million dollars playing for the California teams are paying 13.3% of their income to California state tax, about 40% to federal tax. So quick math, we're looking right around 50-ish percent is just going to taxes. So California, I can say just about 50% is going to taxes because it's the highest state tax in the U.S. California is also notorious for strictly enforcing their tax law and professional athletes are a prime target of that. So, so if you live in California you, or any state, you pay tax on the totality of your income uh, in that state. So again, in Gavrikov's situation, we're just using some kind of round numbers here. After escrow, he makes about $5.5 million. So as a likely California resident, California is going to be able to tax, impose a 13% tax on that 5.5 million. So that was his earnings after escrow. If you uh, just just if you missed that, where did I get that number from? California also is able to impose a tax on every athlete's earnings in the state. So that means everyone who comes to play in a away game in California is subject to what's known as, kind of coined as, a jock tax. It's really a non-resident tax. Anyone's subject to that tax, whether they're an athlete, whether they're you listening to this podcast and you go and work for a week in California. 
The difference between you listening to this podcast, unless you are a professional athlete, welcome, is athletes, it's easy to know that athletes are in your state. It's really hard to dis- to dispute that you didn't, uh, you know, work in the state if you scored a goal, played 20 minutes of uh, on the ice. Kind of hard to say, no, I wasn't there. Everyone knows it. Whereas an ordinary person, it's a little bit harder to kind of track that, oh yeah, they were here doing business for a week. So why are, so this is exactly why athletes are kind of the prime target is because it's easy to know that they're there. California actually has people that, uh, you know, do this for a living track, probably computerized at this point, but they do, they did in the past have people that were basically, you know, box score checking to make sure that everyone's filed that needs to file. So how much, I guess, do athletes pay? How much is California entitled to? How do they impose the tax when any team comes for a road swing in California? So the NHL, most of the East Coast teams will generally do a five to six day road trip to California, play San, some combination of San Jose, LA, Anaheim. Usually Anaheim and LA are back to back nights with an extra night kind of in between for San Jose. Sometimes there's an extra day thrown in. So the trip is usually five to six days. So that's important. NHL players um, earn salaries based on the number of days they're required to perform services for their team. Team executive, I won't name, I'm looking at you here. That starts at the start of training camp and goes to the end of the season, whether that's the regular season or the playoffs. Generally, the Training camp to regular season, that's what we know every hockey player is going to be performing services for, is generally around 207 days. So to calculate how much earnings there are in California, we basically create a ratio. The number of days spent in California, five, six, I'll I'll just say five, divided by the total number of days that the athlete is required to perform services, 207. And so whatever that percentage works out to, times the athlete's salary, their wages from the W-2, shows how much California is allowed to impose tax on. And so every state that has an income take tax and some cities as well impose this so-called jock tax on the athletes as they travel in and out of that jurisdiction. So let's let's use uh, Jacob Slavin real quickly as kind of the example now. So he's going to be subject to tax in North Carolina, which is their tax rates just under 5%. So he's going to pay uh, tax on all of his income, 5% tax on all of his income in North Carolina. Well, he also is going to travel to California during the season. Again, probably five to six days. So when he's in California, California imposes a higher tax rate than he 
kind of has in North Carolina. So he is eligible to offset some of his tax that he's basically paid in both places in North Carolina up to what he kind of owes North Carolina. So let's say some let's use some easy numbers here for this example. Let's say he earns $100,000 in California. In North Carolina, he pays 5% tax on that $100,000, which is $5,000. So California is also taxing that same $100,000 at we'll just say 12% for some easy math here for $12,000. So Carolina is not going to allow you to take what's called a tax credit in their state for more than they impose tax on you. So when Jacob Slavin pays his $5,000 tax to North Carolina and then his $12,000 tax to California, he's been what's called double taxed. Well, North Carolina will allow him to basically subtract from his tax owed to the state that $5,000 that was taxed in both places. Well, if you're doing the math along with me, you'll, you'll notice that that means that he's still $7,000 more in the hole. The $12,000 he owes California minus the $5,000 that he kind of gets as a credit for Carolina. So just because they're they're getting they're getting some back but they're also paying to other states as well so i mentioned earlier california has its highest tax rate in the united states so when those athletes pay, play any away game in a state they are able to basically take a dollar for dollar tax credit in california so every dollar they pay elsewhere they get as a credit in california and again i want to clarify this is states only. Some cities also impose a jock tax. Detroit, Philadelphia are two. St. Louis, not going to talk too much about Pittsburgh. There's some uh, legal things going on over whether it's a tax or a fee. That's probably its own episode. So let's just stick with Detroit, for example. So when uh, the LA Kings travel to Detroit, they'll get a full tax credit for Michigan's 4.25% tax, but the players are going to be hit with Detroit's city tax, 1.2% on their income. And that's just an additional tax that adds on to kind of their overall liability. So most city, city tax rates aren't that high. St. Louis is only a percent, for example. So they're not necessarily getting hit super hard. But it, when you're already paying a good chunk of change to California, those extra percentages on these $10,000, dollars $40,000 is not insignificant either. So Jacob Slavin with, in North Carolina, uh, middle of the road. And then we have Eric Cernak in Tampa Bay. So every home game he plays, he pays, he basically is, tax-free at the state level, because Florida has no state income tax. So his kind of jack tax, his state tax, is composed strictly when Tampa travels on the road. So he doesn't owe tax in Florida. 
He doesn't owe tax in Tennessee, Texas, Washington, where they have no state income tax. And he also doesn't have to worry about paying tax in Canada. So Canadian, U.S., there's a tax treaty in place that basically says if you pay tax to one place, you don't have, you're not subject to double tax on it in the other. So if you're a U.S. hockey player playing for, you know, a U.S.-based team, if you pay those taxes down in the U.S., you don't worry about paying anything additional in Canada. For Canadian players, they do uh, pay a tax to U.S. states because U.S. states kind of are allowed to do their own thing. But that comes back as a credit up in Canada the same way as I talked about in North Carolina with Jacob Slavin. So any dollar that a Canadian player, uh, citizen, resident pays in the U.S. basically gets it back as a credit up in Canada. So it's, it's a wash. And the difference between states in the U.S. and Canada is cities count as a credit up in Canada. It's not, it's not real helpful when uh, some of the provinces have extremely high uh, tax rates, British Columbia, Ontario, looking at you, and Quebec to an extent as well. There's also some other tax planning strategies, opportunities that Canadian uh, citizens, residents, hockey players can take advantage of to kind of lower and offset a level of that tax burden. But that's not for this episode by any means. So that's kind of the best sense I can give you in, you know, a reasonable episode, podcast episode um, of how kind of the, the taxes are calculated for professional athletes. I think really the most important thing to, to kind of take away is jock taxes exist Anytime an athlete travels to another state, city, they are a tax is imposed on them. Athletes kind of get the rep because of their profile, but it's not just athletes. It's it's really anyone in theory who travels with a team or just for work. And it's important, and again, it's important to note that some places it it's actually an additional like dollar paid. You're not you you're paying more because there's a higher tax in the other state. Other times, like if you're a California resident, paying another state really isn't moving your bottom line at all. So, if you have any questions on, you know, how jock tax works, I, I did also make an appearance on the Expected by Whom podcast, talked about jock tax there, um, but you're, you're always welcome to hit me up on Twitter at K underscore Stitcher, S-T-I-C-H-E-R, or at AFP Analytics. Feel free to ask your questions, um, and, I, and I'd be happy to answer to the best of my ability. But to give a little bit, to get back to our kind of hard numbers, our recap of where we sit. So Gavrikov, LA Kings, we're assuming he's going to be a California resident, pay tax on all his income to the state of California, plus the U.S. government. After taking about out 352500 of escrow, 
his union dues of $6,030 might be a little bit higher for this upcoming season. His agent fees, $193,000 and a little change. And his taxes of basically $3.2 million. That's just over 50% of his income. He's left with a take-home of approximately $2 million, $2.1 million. Take out those, you know, trainer fees, some conditioning expenses. He's probably only putting about $2 million, maybe a little under, of his $5.875 million contract into his bank account. That works out to about 35-36%. So again, Vladislav Gavrikov, who has almost a $6 million contract with the Los Angeles Kings, to just be a high-level professional hockey player, is probably only putting 35% of that into his bank account. Jacob Slavin, his number works out to 2 Point three million before taking out kind of those age uh, those sorry those conditioning trainer fees. So taking those out, you probably just the shade over two million, about forty three percent of his five point three million dollar contract. His tax liability two point five million, so little bit under fifty percent. And then Eric Cernick, who has a $5.2 million contract, is putting into his bank account $2.46 million, about 47%, which includes him paying $2.25 million in tax, which is just a shade over 40%. So... When all said and done, Eric Cernak, who has the smallest contract kind of that you see publicly that's displayed on Cat Friendly, the smallest average annual value, is taking home almost two million more, two hundred thousand more, sorry, two hundred thousand more than Jacob Slavin from Carolina, who has a hundred thousand more of a gross contract. And three hundred to four hundred thousand more than Vladislav Gavrikov, whose contract is closer to six million than it is to five million. So Cernik is taking home a very significant chunk of change more, just based on where he's playing. So I think over the past couple years, there's been a lot of talk about how Tampa Bay's been able to, you know, get their players to take a hometown discount. Um, yes, they have been. But the hometown discount is they play in the state of Florida where there's no income tax. Vegas and Nevada, same thing. Yes, their players take less. Yes, they won a cup. The hometown discount, though, is they pay less in tax. I, I think the the big... The big thing here is we specifically pulled these players on these teams because it can kind of show the extreme that happens here. 
Eric Cernak on the surface making 675000 less than Gavrikov, yet walking home with roughly 330000 more. Um, it, it speaks exactly to what the hometown discount really is. Like you said, it's, it's kind of all about the tax. What are they actually taking home when all these different fees, taxes are taken out. You might think, well, of course, Cernak would want 5.875 with the Kings. No, he doesn't, actually. He'd really rather have 5.2 with Tampa because of this tax situation. His agent might rather have uh, the 5.875 with the Kings. That's true, but just strictly speaking from the player's perspective, it's it's very beneficial to be in one of these tax state uh, income tax-free um, situations. I, I think that kind of tongue-in-cheek comment does bring up an interesting point, though, that an agent kind of has a push and pull here. Like, So in these higher tax states realistically their players need to get paid more to compensate for kind of losing more of their money to taxes. Well, the agent fee is also based on that, that kind of top number there. So there's a level of push and pull between kind of what, how the agent's going to make the most money and putting their client in the best situation. And if the agent's working for the client, like they should, uh, the, the better situation is to take that lower contract in some place like a Tampa Bay uh, because it does get their player more money. So those are like expenses that all NHL players are going to probably incur. I guess the conditioning trainer fees are a level of avoidable. But again, if you're trying to stay in tip-top shape and also, you know, not not be looked at as kind of the jerk in the locker room, you're you're going to be incurring those fees. But there's some other kind of potentially hidden expenses as well that athletes might have to incur in kind of the course of their career. So, I mean, tax preparation isn't free. It's not the biggest expense. You also probably have a financial advisor who's taking a percentage of kind of the money that they're working with. So however much you're setting aside in the bank, they're taking a percentage of that as well. And then depending on kind of how your career plays out, your living situation. So yes, you, you probably have a place, a house, an apartment, condo, where whatever, somewhere that you're paying for. But someone who kind of becomes a level of a journeyman um, kind of might be holding multiple properties at once. So let's let's stick with Gavrikov here a little bit. So he was in Columbus for a long time. He might have, I, I don't know his exact situation, but there's a good chance he bought a house, a condo, some some type of property. The minute he was traded to L.A., he's not living there anymore. And for the rest of the season when he was traded to L.A., the Kings were, were kind of responsible for for 
providing a level of stipend to kind of take care of some some living expenses for him. But now that he's upped for two years, even if he had just upped for one, signed a one-year contract extension, he's now on the hook for, you know, getting his own living quarters in Los Angeles area, which is not going to be cheap. As well as he still might have this house in Columbus. There's tons of players in this type of situation where, you know, they get traded at the deadline, trade in the offseason with a year left on their contract. They have a young young family, maybe kids just starting school. How practical is it to sell that house that you've been living in for however many years when you only, you know, you might only be in this, this other city for a year? Chances are you're going to end up getting some sort of second place to live in, whether it's a, like just renting someplace or buying another place and taking on a second mortgage, but you might be doubling how much you're kind of spending on housing just based on the situation. The minute you're traded to for uh, in the off season, you're expected to find your own place to live. So even if that's a one year kind of rent rental situation, you have to you have to foot that bill, and if you want to kind of you know have the status of an NHL player, you're probably not finding someplace cheap. I see commonly uh, players kind of rent to other players. Um, one player gets traded out of away from a team, is playing somewhere else. Well, a new a new player on that team's renting the house they own. I see that multiple in multiple situations. Make sure you have clients that rent from each other. Um, so. So that could be, uh, I mean, we could be talking another three, four thousand dollars. Sure, you could, you might be scoffing at that a little bit, like that's high rent. But if you're looking at that amount per month, that's that's again a significant chunk of change for the year. And then you do that twice, it's another. I mean, we're pushing almost another hundred thousand dollar expense there, which again, you is there's a level of avoidance, but if you're bouncing around and you have like a year contract, you're still paying that amount of money. So another $100,000 down, potentially down the drain. I think that kind of speaks more towards the, the human side of this. Is it's, it's not something anyone's thinking about when a player gets traded, really, but it's an actual person getting traded. They have a home or families. It's something to think about. It's, it's an extra cost. Yeah, so, I mean, again, we don't want to, like, sit here and say that Vladislav Gavrikov putting $2 million in his pocket isn't, isn't really nice. We, we'd love to have that ourselves. Anyone probably would. But that's on a $6 million contract, a stated value of almost $6 million that he's only putting two in his pocket. And I think it's also really important. I started the episode, and I think this kind of brings it full circle. Athletes' careers are, if they're lucky, 10 to 20 years tops. And unfortunately, some, you know, some athletes sustain injuries or that don't allow them to kind of work after their career's done. So these, these earnings need to sustain them. And also, like, if you've been a professional hockey player from basically 16 years old playing juniors, you're basically a professional all the way through, you know, you retire 
let's just say 30, 36, 20 year window there, you also haven't built up kind of a resume of skills that other people who have went the more traditional route in life have. So finding a job post playing, it's so it's sure it's easier if you're a big name, you can probably find someplace on TV or work with a team in a development role. But if you're kind of like a minor league guy, I see lots of guys kind of retire and then have to start as an, an entry level sales after finishing their hockey career because they, you know, they were they were bouncing between the AHL playing in Europe and careers over. They don't really have the resume that someone else at their age would have. And uh, so they're starting at square one like any kind of recent college graduate. So. There really is a human side to it. So, yeah, there's there's NHL players that make plenty of money, but the NHL players are a small percentage of all hockey players, small percentage of all athletes. So those lesser guys, you know, they're scraping by, and they're really not making as much money. So the, the 23 guys on each team's roster, yeah, they probably have it pretty pretty well. Maybe not the guys on the minimum deals. Like they're making under a million dollars a year as their gross contract. Again, taxes aren't necessarily linear, but if we're ta- if we're taking just say rough numbers here, about half off of a million dollar LA Kings player, they're down to just five hundred thousand before their agent fees, their union dues, all these other living expenses we've talked about. That's really not a ton of money, especially living in the L.A. area. So hopefully this episode kind of sheds some light. Again, a lot of athletes are well-paid, but using the term overpaid, that's sometimes a stretch. We, I, think, I think using the term well-paid is the best we can do. And also remember when kind of you're seeing negotiations between athletes and ownership, owners have billions of dollars, athletes have millions some and uh just so there's a there is a big discrepancy we we will usually side you know players over ownership just because well the money's not really there as much for the players as it is for the owners and uh with that we would like to thank you for listening uh if you have any questions thoughts on this episode feel free to tweet us at afp analytics subscribe uh to this podcast on any uh platform that you might Uh, Consume it on, and uh, we'll talk to you next time.